Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. On the last episode of Guilt. What's always amazed me is, in spite of the fact that they employ hundreds and hundreds of people, Everywhere you went there, you couldn't, there was nobody, didn't see anybody. There's a rolling mill there, and there's all the steel pouring out and turning into rolls. And, and you're looking around, there's nobody there. They're, they're sitting in offices up above looking yeah. down, but you just don't see people there. I suppose with the with, with our group of three, we would always, we tried not to work alone in some parts. They, they were quite, quite strict about always being seen or being not being alone. There's violence that may disturb some people. Today we can officially announce that New Zealand Steel has cracked the code. On the 21st of June 2004, scientist Jim Donnelly vanished from his work at the Glenbrook From Brevity Studios in New Zealand, I'm Ryan Wolf, and this is Guilt. Uh, there was nothing in the early days to indicate that we were looking for somebody who had uh, been any misadventure. don't know what you're going to find. It started off as a joke and then it got rather scary. I just asked um, if anybody out there has any information that can help me put this um, bridge in home. In the last episode, I focused on the history of the town of Waiuku and New Zealand Steel, because I felt it was vital to paint a picture of the background of this case, because it all may potentially play a role in the disappearance of Jim Donnelly. Now, in this episode, it's time to focus on the case itself. As I mentioned in the previous episode, the timeline of events that led up to Jim's disappearance are truly bizarre. And the truth of what happened to Jim, no doubt, is hidden here. Over the course of the 18 years of this case, there has been one man who has been the driving force. In his own words, you can't type Jim Donnelly 
without finding his name. This man is Dave Glossop. He's currently the lead for the Frontline Safety Improvement Program, based out of Wellington. The program is focusing on the improved safety of officers at the front line. In recent times, shootings and other violence towards police has become more prevalent, such as the tragic death of Police Constable Matt Hunt, who was fatally shot during a routine traffic stop in June 2020. In July 2022, Dave finally officially handed Jim's case over to a new detective. But for the previous 12 years, he has been relentless in not giving up the mystery of what happened to Jim Donnelly. I pick up a couple coffees from a nearby cafe and meet Dave on a Saturday morning at the Pukekohe police station. It's closed and quiet, but Dave appears, swinging a side door open, and to my surprise, reveals a bustling police station. We make our way to a small interview room, where we pull up a couple seats and I set up my equipment. Dave is an instantly likeable character, friendly and open. He didn't have to agree to this interview, but he did, catching the red eye from Wellington on a Saturday. He's always held the belief that any exposure for the case can only be beneficial. So I've always been a, um, a South cop. Uh, I wasn't actually in a country when the, um, the actual, when Jim went missing. But uh, I think I was a detective senior sergeant. So when I came back, um, you know, it's been a, a pretty big case. It's not the sort of thing that happens all the time. So it's mm. been uh, pretty big news in uh, Pukekohe and um, Waikou and stuff. So. Well, when I officially um, got handed the file to review it, I was the um, uh, OC investigations for the south area. Sorry. That's right. Uh, so, yes, yeah, to say, it, it was still, or always has been classified as a missing persons file. And in New Zealand, missing persons files don't get filed. Uh, they get continuously uh, reviewed um, at least once a year. So, yeah, I, I picked it up when I started here and um, did an end-to-end uh, review of the file to see if there was anything that was missed. Yep. And... Um, and then, yeah, I built a relationship with Tracy and the kids, and um, so I still maintain that relationship. Uh, it's only been in the last uh, couple of months because of the role I have and the fact that I spend so much time away from Auckland that uh, a, a detective inspector uh, called Sean Vickers has now taken over the case and has just met with Tracy and uh, will continue. But to say, um, the file doesn't get filed. Um, yep. It's our New Zealand way that we just keep chipping away. A real credit to Dave and how he's handled this case over the years is his openness and willingness to work with Jim's family, and in particular, his wife Tracy. Meeting on a yearly basis to field any questions and to go over any new information he may have. Initially, due to the bizarre sequence of events that took place, it seemed there were a number of possible leads. But as it turned out, every time one piece of the puzzle seemed to fit, Another piece fell out. Look, I've said before, and I say that all the time, nothing makes sense. There's nothing to anchor yourself on. I've been involved in quite a few homicide investigations, and uh, there's always facts that you, 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 know, you link things around. But in this case, uh, the facts are often contradictory or they don't make sense. Mm. You know, I'm sure we'll get to it, but things like the acid bath, you know, things like that just don't actually make sense. Yes, you heard that correctly. Acid vat. 
The involvement of a particular vat of acid has long been considered either the red herring or the smoking gun of this entire case. But it's just one small piece of a bigger picture. But before we move any further, I think it's time we give everything some context and revisit the timeline of events that took place leading up to Jim's disappearance. This sequence I'm about to cover is drawn directly from the working police timeline of the case, appropriately named Operation Steel. For the purposes of this episode, I'm only going to cover the key points. We'll delve into the finer details in depth when we meet many of these key witnesses in upcoming episodes, and may challenge some of the points in this timeline. Remember, this is the information the police have based their investigation on for the last 18 years. There's a lot to pack in here, so pay attention. On approximately the 8th of June 2004, Tracy Donnelly makes a reservation for a night at the Hyatt Hotel in Auckland, New Zealand for herself and Jim. A week later, at 7am, Wednesday 16th of June, Jim calls his best friend Stephen Taylor's father, Colin Taylor, stating he is considering joining the Freemasons, of whom Colin is a member. Later that day, at 4pm, Jim calls Tracy to arrange to meet and discuss joining the Freemasons at home. Tracy was to cancel her normal gym commitment that night. Jim expressed the view that this was very important. At 5.30 that night, they meet at home to discuss Jim's plans to join the Masons. Tracy was not happy with the proposal, but agreed in principle if she herself did not have to participate. Jim then decided he wanted to discuss the idea with Tracy's father, Brian Hughes, and seek his views at the same time picking up the children who were there at the time. At 6pm, they pick up the children and Jim speaks with Brian. At 7pm that night, Jim drives to Colin Taylor's residence and picks up the Freemason application from Colin's wife Shirley and discusses joining the Freemasons and what that means. The next morning, on Thursday, June 17th, Jim calls Colin Taylor and advises that he doesn't think it'll be possible for him to join the Freemasons. Friday, 18th June. Tracy and Jim have a meal at Tracy's parents. Jim appears in a strange mood and wants to go home earlier than normal. At 7pm, as he's leaving work, a work colleague notices Jim and the fact that he looks rather scruffy. He mentions this to another colleague. Saturday, June 19th, 2004, 9am. Stephen Taylor, Jim's oldest friend, visits Jim at his home and stays for approximately two hours. Jim appears tired and claimed he had not been getting a lot of sleep. After Stephen leaves, Jim tells Tracy that he has to go to a meeting, but refuses to say what the meeting is for, but that their planned night at the Hyatt Hotel would need to be cancelled. Tracy is upset by this, and they have a heated discussion, during which Jim advises Tracy that it might be a good idea for her to go and speak to her parents. Tracy goes to her parents' house, and tells them that Jim is going to a meeting and not going as planned to the Hyatt. Tracy's father Brian and Tracy drive to Jim and Tracy's home, where they speak to Jim for two to three hours, but are unable to change his mind about the meeting. Jim states that he's given in to Tracy too many times, and this time, he's holding his ground. Tracy tells Jim that if the meeting is more important than his family, he should consider moving out. 
Tracy's mother, June, tells Jim that if this is his decision, he should tell his son. Jim tells his son that mum and dad may have to live in separate houses. He then proceeds to pack a bag. At this point, June checks on Jim, and on discovering how devastated he is, asks Tracy if this is what she really wants. Tracy's reply is no, and the decision is made that Jim doesn't need to move out, and that he can go to the meeting. At 1pm on the same day, Jim states he needs to obtain a suit because his clothes aren't good enough for the meeting he must attend. He leaves for approximately three quarters of an hour. 4.30pm. Jim, now back at home, tells Tracy that he might be a bit fragile the next day. Tracy asks if he means physically or mentally. Jim replies, physically. 5pm. Tracy goes out and gets some videos for the kids and returns home at 6pm to find the garage door open. Jim appears from the house dressed in a suit, gets into his car and drives away, presumably to the meeting. 7.27pm. Jim is recorded purchasing Chinese takeaways from Dragon Spring Restaurant at 105 Dominion Road, Mount Eden. While Jim is gone, Tracy calls Jim's sister, Heather Duggan. Tracy explains that Jim is becoming more paranoid and doing unusual things. While on the phone, Heather hears Jim return home in the background and say, Get your glad rags on, we can still make it. Tracy replies, We can't go, it's called off, referring to the night planned at the Hyatt Hotel. Heather advises Tracy to talk things over with Jim and hangs up. Jim asks Tracy if she's had dinner as he's picked up Chinese. Tracy replies that yes, she has, so Jim eats his meal. Jim asks Tracy if she'll have a glass of wine with him, which she does. Jim falls asleep on the couch. Tracy wakes him and tells him to go to bed, which he does. Sunday, June 20th, 2004. Jim wakes early, sometime between 4 and 5 a.m. At 6 a.m., he tells Tracy he needs to go for a walk. At 8.30, Tracy gets up to find Jim back at home, working on his computer. At 2 p.m., Jim takes his son to the local driving range, Big Swing, then visits his mother Hazel Donnelly before calling into Stephen Taylor's house to find no one home. He then goes grocery shopping. 5pm. Jim returns home to drop his son off and states to Tracy that he has to go and avert some sort of a waste and a crisis. He appears in a hurry to go and leaves. 6.30pm. Jim appears in the secure car park of Profile Publishing Limited on Dominion Road, Mount Eden. He enters the car park by closely tailing another car through the barrier arm. He is then confronted by Beverly Elgar and Reginald Elgar. Jim is vague in his answers as to why he is at the car park, and they ask him to leave the premises. His behaviour causes them enough concern to call the police and security firm Guard New Zealand, who arrive and issue Jim with a trespass notice. 7pm. Jim returns home, claiming he had been to work. Tracy confronts him on this, and he admits that he lied but he would not say where he had been. He appears agitated and unwilling to talk. Monday, June 21st, 2004. Sometime between 4.30am and 5am, Jim wakes Tracy and informs her of a Harry Potter game that he had purchased for his son's birthday and would sort this out tonight when he got home. He makes lunch for himself, 
Tracy and the children, and then leaves for work. 6.08am. Jim's ID card is swiped at the entrance to the Glenbrook steel mill. He drives to the car park and parks his vehicle. He proceeds to the locker room and starts to change into his work clothes. Here, a worker sees Jim standing by his locker, wearing his jeans, but no shirt. A few minutes later, the same worker returns to find Jim still standing in the same position, with no shirt on, by his locker, but repositioned so as not to allow the worker to see Jim's face. 6.15am An operator in the rolling mills plant sees Jim from 10 metres away, behind the number 4 pulpit. Notes Jim wearing a mill jacket, yellow helmet, earmuffs, walking the normal route to his office. Around the same time, a shift supervisor sees Jim at the top of the stairs heading towards his office, says good morning to Jim, but does not get a reply. Notes that Jim looked as if he was frozen on the spot or had been caught and didn't want to be seen. Ten minutes later, at around 6.30am, Jim is seen again, this time coming back from behind the number four pulpit, around the pickle line exit, back around the conveyor and back towards the pulpit, meaning Jim turned twice, as if trying to make up his mind about something. 8am. Tracy calls Jim at work, but is unable to get hold of him. 8.30am. Mill worker Dean Forsman sees Jim from a distance of 10 to 15 metres, walking past the four-high pulpit, heading east towards the lubrication unit. Reports Jim is wearing an orange fleece jacket, yellow hard hat, and glasses. 11am. Tracy calls Debbie Taylor, Stephen's wife, to discuss Jim's behaviour on the Saturday. Debbie then calls Stephen and relays the information as she's concerned after her conversation with Tracy. Stephen calls Jim at work and leaves a message. At 12, Stephen again tries Jim at work and is unsuccessful, so leaves another message. 1pm. Stephen calls the mill asking for Jim. The employee that answers replies that he thought Jim was sick. 2.35pm. Stephen again calls the mill and informs a team leader that he is concerned about Jim's welfare and tells them not to call Jim at home because Stephen is going to go to Jim's house to find him. Before ending the call, Stephen gives the employee Jim's car registration. At the mill, the cold mill manager attempts to locate Jim's car and finds it in the car park. He then informs staff safety manager Pauline Hutter that they have a man missing. A search is started immediately. Stephen rings his wife Debbie and instructs her to contact police and hospitals. She does this, but reports no sight of Jim. 3pm. Stephen leaves work and drives to Jim's house. He arrives finding Brian, Tracy's father, already there. 3.30pm. Tracy leaves work and goes to her parents' house on Debbie's instructions, just in case Jim had come home and done something stupid. 3.50pm. Stephen Taylor rings another friend of Jim's, Clayton Hills, who suggests another call to the mill. Stephen calls, and the team leader suggests they come to the mill. They leave immediately. Tracy's father waits at Jim's home in case he returns there. 6.30pm. After receiving a call from Stephen at the mill, due to Jim not having yet been found there, Tracy goes to the Papakura police station, where she reports Jim missing. 6.56pm Police are contacted by Glenbrook Steel Mill Health and Safety Officer Pauline Hutter. 
8pm. Sergeant Yearbury, Constable Fraser and Constable Yandel arrive at the mill to make inquiries. The decision is made to await the outcome of the internal search initiated by Glenbrook Steel Mill Management. 11pm, initial search completed. Jim is not found. Decision made to continue the search in the morning. Tuesday, 22nd June 2004. Search and Rescue Coordinator, Sergeant Dean Duthie, conducts a search of the external environs using 10 Police Search and Rescue, 7 Air Force Emergency Response Group, along with police dogs. Police Eagle helicopter is also used to cover the tops of buildings and provide air coverage for the search. Search is called off upon darkness. Wednesday, 23rd June, 2004. Search continues with 9 Search and Rescue staff, 4 Royal New Zealand Air Force, 12 Land Search and Rescue, and 17 steel mill workers. A waterborne search is also conducted by Senior Constable Anthony Flanagan in a Red Knight 3-metre inflatable boat. A male is seen by a contractor in a paddock described as running for his life towards the estuary. However, this is later found to be a different mill worker. Saturday, 26th of June 2004. Sergeant Duthie locates footprints in the sand on a beach not far from the mill. However, these are also not believed to be left by Jim. Approximately 8pm, steel mill worker Bruce Robinson locates Jim's safety hat behind a protective cage next to a vat of acid. The vat is drained overnight. Sunday, 27th June 2004. After draining the vat, some of Jim's belongings are located inside and include a red work security padlock with the name Jim Donnelly, Jim's personal electronic pocket diary, glasses, three keys, a steel mill troubleshooting card, and a boot inner sole. From the filter, a $20 note, two $10 notes, a Visa card, American Express card, a library card with the name Donnelly, and a jacket tag with the name Dean. Two more tanks are scooped, but nothing found. In the following weeks, there are a number of apparent sightings, but none of these are ever confirmed to be Jim. That is the full timeline of events, according to the police file. And as you're probably thinking, gives police a number of leads in the initial stages of the investigation. We're going to refer back to this timeline often, and we'll make additions, corrections, and amendments as this podcast continues and see if we can highlight any potential issues that may have been overlooked. Now that you have a better understanding of the details of the case, we'll continue with my conversation with Inspector Dave Glossop, where he outlines that he only sees three real possibilities, and goes on to explain why the police need to hold back certain facts of any case. Well, it's it's actually um, quite critical because um, if you end up in a... I mean, there's always going to be three possibilities here, that um, there's something suspicious, um, Jim took his own life, or he's disappeared. I mean, there are no fourth uh, ideas uh, on this. If we ever end up in a court case, uh, for one reason or another, the police need to hold back certain facts. Uh, I mean, everybody sees it on TV. you You need to hold back certain facts because you want to have things that only somebody who has beyond intimate knowledge of yeah. the case to be able to uh, talk about. And so there's, there's, there's been uh, you know, a bit of media on it, um, as, as you well know. There's, uh, and so we have to very carefully 
control what information goes out there. That's where most of it comes through me because yeah. I know what I've said before. Yeah. And I won't say things that I haven't said before that I need to keep back. So when I reinvestigated it, I it was a file that say I inherited um, and it was a complete inheritance because the person who was previously investigating it uh, had left the police. So I started from scratch. Uh, an interesting fact um, is Sensing Murder, a TV show back in the day, uh, which I think still plays sometimes at two o'clock in the morning, uh, had become interested in the case. Sensing Murder was a popular psychic medium-based crime show which ran for six seasons in New Zealand from 2002. The New Zealand police had somewhat of a love-hate relationship with the program. While they loved the extra attention the show brought to the case, it was widely felt internally that police resources were being wasted chasing leads put forward by the psychics. Eventually, the New Zealand police cut ties with the show, making it clear their reasoning being that in the six years the show aired, there was not a single successful lead as a result. And it was really interesting to see the influence that that had on the police investigation because, you know, we don't want to leave any stone unturned. And when we have people ringing us up or a program like that where people... So I was quite uh, intrigued by the way that uh, the influence that that program had had on the investigation. But what I deliberately did is not look at the Sensing Murder um, TV show and just went straight back to the file and went through the file um, looking at any gaps, you know, um, fresh pair of eyes is always really good. Uh, I couldn't find any fault in the investigation. It was really, really good. The only thing that I did notice is that the search originally for Jim had been looking for somebody who was injured or um, it wasn't actually looking for somebody who was trying to avoid the police or the searches because it could quite easily, because it searched in like grid patterns, mm. somebody could have easily moved into an area that had been searched and they were looking for somebody who was trying to summon help so they weren't turning over every rock so to speak yeah so the first thing i did was um, go and re-interview a few key people go and visit the mill myself to become really familiar with uh, the surroundings and what was going on there so i could put things into context as i was reading it and then uh, organized pretty much a massive search so completely researched um, the mill Obviously, because uh, of the passage of time, there'd been maintenance and restructures of things. So there was areas that were clearly uh, no point searching. Anybody that was there, even remains, uh, would have been would have been found. But it's a vast area. I don't know if you've been out there yet. It is I, a really vast I, area. Yeah. Uh, Google Maps is probably the best option, just to really I, see how yeah. big it is. Um, so uh, I was talking with our search and rescue um, leader who decided we would put GPS on each of the trackers so we could actually see what areas have been covered. Uh, and we decided that, you know, in for a penny, and for a pound, so we went full Monty, we yeah. went um, cadaver dogs and everything to just try and just really nail um, the search. To clarify here, this new investigation, led by Dave Glossop, took place in 2010, six years after Jim's disappearance. We'll cover the previous investigation and rulings in an upcoming episode. So, um, you know, you would still find remains and that sort of stuff. Uh, we even consulted with the FBI at the time around ground penetrating radar and stuff um, to see what we would be capable of. Um, there's some oxidation ponds, sewage ponds, uh, um, out on the, in the mills area, and they had never been searched for the um, 
I guess, obvious reasons. Um, but then we also discovered through investigation of it that uh, if anything had been in those ponds, um, they would have been um, gone by now anyway because yeah. it's so corrosive. So, yeah. um, so we got the ESR out there at the time and uh, yeah. you know, took some samples and stuff. But we are talking about oxidation ponds where raw sewerage goes in. So they, uh, They're down to the south, are they? Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. So it wasn't really a thing we could go and put the police divers into. Yeah. And then, as the ponds go to cleaner ponds, um, we, we had visible uh, sites if, if there was anything in there anyway. But we—that's just uh, me trying to explain that we we tried to leave absolutely no stone until. Yeah. Uh, Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. In the years since Jim's disappearance, there has often been criticism from different areas of the public that not enough was done by the mill or even the police in these crucial early hours. But as Dave points out, in those early hours of the search, no one was thinking the worst. They were simply looking for a missing person. I don't think a lot of New Zealanders would appreciate just how many people work there. It's 24 hours. Um, back then, too, a lot of their um, processes were very uh, proprietary. You know, they didn't want uh, people, you know, mainstream media and opposition looking at what they were doing. But uh, I have absolutely no criticism. Um, I know there has been criticism, particularly, you know, um, I guess conspiracy theorists and stuff, mm. who, but I've found them, and even from the uh, previous OC, uh, anything, there'll be nothing but cooperative. Yeah. So if, you, you've got to also put things into context. We were looking, uh, there was nothing in the early days to indicate that we were looking for somebody who had, um, it had been any misadventure. Mm. If we treated every, uh, just by common sense, if we treated every missing person like it was a homicide, it would be paralysis by analysis. You know, yeah. we just simply don't it's have the resources. Yeah. Um, and you know, statistically, most people like that will, uh, you know, who disappear and under those sort of circumstances, just broadly, will reappear. You know, 24, 48 hours later, we had um, as part of which is completely standard with our search and rescue teams. We had psychologists involved straight away, yeah. and through um, Tracy's uh, openness as, as to what had been leading up to that day um, it did and there's nothing to actually change that it looked like somebody who was just needing a bit of time out Jim was a very unique person you know his personality uh, yeah. I would love to have met him uh, yeah. but you know the um, fact that he was such an introvert but then extroverted in other ways he was you know a hoarder but it, it, but it was for the right reasons you know he was not one of these you know at home hoarders but he kept all his information so he could go back and review um, things and his relationships that he had with people were very um, it's the same not mainstream. Jim's role at the mill is most often described in the media 
as a scientist. However, this is not technically accurate. Jim was what is known as a process engineer, which is a person who designs, implements, and optimizes chemical and biochemical processes, especially continuous flow operations like at NZ Steel, on an industrial scale to turn raw ingredients into an end product. It was Jim's job to basically understand how everything worked, be able to fix and make improvements. His job required an incredible amount of skill, and Jim was widely considered to be a genius by friends and work colleagues. As we are all aware, sometimes great intelligence can come at a cost to certain social ability, and Jim fits into this category. Yeah, look, he was described um, several times uh, as like the absent-minded professor. Yeah. yeah, he was brilliant at what he did, but uh, he would go off on tangents, and yeah. yeah. So you know, the um, it was recounted to me how they tried to get all of the uh, scientists, also the, the tech people, to work together, and they put all the chairs and tables together so that uh, they were facing each other, so that we you know, interact yeah. more and stuff. And uh, I don't know if this is literal, but I think I was told that he lasted 20 minutes before he put his <laughs> desk back in the corner so he was facing away from everybody. Yeah. Um, so he, he was seen as, you know, that, um, that, that guy that was a bit different, but I didn't come across anybody who disliked mm. Jim. He was just yeah. like, yeah, Jim was Jim. And yeah. he'd been accepted uh, mm. there as, um, you said, that guy that was a bit of an absent-minded professor, but actually knew what he was doing really well. You know, his uh, lack of engagement with social activities at the mill, you know, mm. he'd been there quite a few years and hadn't yeah. really engaged in, you know, going yeah. out and... Uh, you know going to functions and stuff but um you know uh it takes all sorts i read somewhere that you were when you said about the psychologists the ones that were initially involved in the search straight away um did you eventually sort of sit down with someone and really go over all of the different um things leading up to it and get sort of a a more defined idea of maybe what might have happened so the problem is the word defined so um i'm not stepping over any boundaries here but because uh the case is uh worn heavily on me for such a long time you know for Tracy and the family I just love to solve it let alone my own reasons every time I find myself with a group of professionals and in this sort of job you often do um, I will recount the case and get people's opinions and see if there's anything I haven't thought of you know very open to you know uh, not knowing what I don't know and um, which you know led us to engaging with a forensic accountant, uh, which had been done superficially, but uh, much deeper to make sure there wasn't any um, money squirrelled away or any abnormalities. But no, uh, the, the consensus, and I'm paraphrasing here, the consensus seems to be some sort of mental breakdown. Yeah, and I think the behaviour in the week leading up, you know, the the visits to the um, uh, TVNZ car park and that sort of stuff. Um, but, you know, you use that word juxtaposition before. Uh, no two people can agree mm. on... Because there's nothing to anchor from. Yeah. You know, there's usually some specifics in every case that you can go back to and say, well, does it fit with this known fact? Uh, you know, the facts in this case in relation to Jim's movements and stuff, um, apart from buying the takeaways and we've got the credit card, uh, mm. the FPOS transaction and stuff timings are all very very vague mm. and um yeah you know the, uh, the helmet uh, which i'm sure we're going to get to yeah 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 you know uh, 
nothing makes sense because as you explain something and then you put yourself into Jim's position, um, he wouldn't do that. And, 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 we, and we can explore those as we talk. Yeah. But it's, um, yeah, look, it's mind-bending trying yeah. to get to establish what could have or mm. uh, has happened there. There's no doubt that on first glance, Jim's bizarre actions leading up to his disappearance could indicate some type of a mental breakdown. But as Dave alluded to at the end there, there's always something that doesn't quite fit, just doesn't quite make sense. And nothing more so than his hard hat and the other items which were found in the vat of acid five days after Jim's disappearance. As one mill worker stated to me in frustration, this wouldn't even be an interesting case if it wasn't for the hard hat being found. Just to refresh your memory, Jim was last seen by mill staff on the morning of Monday, June 21st, 2004. A plant-wide search was undertaken, lasting many days, resulting in nothing of interest being found. Then on Saturday, June 26th, five days after Jim was last seen, his hard hat and other items are found in the vat of acid. This really leaves only two possible options. Either A, Jim for some reason put the items in the vat and left his helmet sitting beside the vat, and they were then completely overlooked in the subsequent searches prior to Saturday the 26th, or B, someone else put these items here after Jim went missing and after the searches had taken place, which would have to indicate that someone else was involved or knows something more about Jim's disappearance. But to muddy the waters even further, these acid vats are not all they seem. Yeah, so the acid vat was, um, and again... Um, media who've covered this story before really love that term mm. acid vat you know it sounds like something from a Sunday horrors movie yeah. back in the day um, but it was a knurling solution which is just to loosen rust um, it's been described to me by scientists as you could swim in it and get a suntan mm. you know so and Jim would know that mm. so the uh, personal items that were found inside the acid vat um, which included the old-fashioned um, cash, you know, the paper cash back in the day before the plastic stuff, wasn't even damaged. Mm. That's, you know, just to indicate how weak yeah. uh, the acid was. Um, but the fact that the helmet had not... I mean, it stood out. I wanted to use a uh, colloquialism there, but it really stood out. It, uh, it was yellow. It had um, earmuffs which had been upgraded. A lot of people had the earmuffs separate to the helmet. So Jim's helmet stood up, stood out. No more so than the fact that it had Donnelly written across the front of it. So oh, it, so actually on the front. So it really stood out in black letters on a yellow helmet. So the fact that that hadn't been seen or picked up during the surge, including the police surge, yeah. you're looking for a missing person called Donnelly, the helmet on a... Mm on a vat, uh, an acid vat on an inspection window, which it, it had been put. Definitely looks like, uh, you know, just to the layman, looks like it was an enticement, mm. you know. Uh, but when it turned up there, nobody knows. Mm. Nobody recognised it until a couple of days after the main surge. Yeah. And again, you know, um, the fact that the acid's so weak, the stuff was put in, but not all of his stuff was mm. put in there. His dad's watch wasn't in there. For me... As opposed to the items that were found in the vat, the most interesting items are in fact the ones that weren't. Some of the items that Jim would normally have carried on his person were missing, and this was obviously intentional. 
Jim's car keys and house keys had been removed off his keychain and his watch or driver's license were never found. So why remove some things and not others? Yeah. But yet I haven't seen anything about a watch. It was, it was just like, who would discard cash? Mm. Um, you know, and all your other personal documents, but not a driver's license. So, oh, the watch has it? No, because watch, someone watch said that. Oh, because I had someone message the other day saying that his, he knew the person who found the watch or something. And I was like... That's what? news to me, yeah. And I said, I was like, what, what watch? I don't know yeah. about a watch. Curiously, a couple weeks prior to my interview with Dave, I was contacted by a person who said a friend knew of the person at the mill that had found Jim's watch in the VAT area. At the time, I didn't really give it much thought, as I just assumed it was among the known items located. It had never been reported in any media as a missing item. So when Dave mentioned the watch, it stood out. Was Jim's watch found, but never turned in? I've since tried contacting this lead, but have yet to make any headway. He himself admitted it could be confusion over time, and perhaps it wasn't a watch that was found. But it's a hell of a coincidence. So now, I'm going to reach out to you. If you or someone you know located Jim Donnelly's watch from the mill, can you please contact us at brevitystudiosnz at gmail.com. And it was his father's watch, so it had some significance, which of course led us down the track that he'd taken something, you know, the whole I'm going to start, because everybody thinks that, you know, because it's happened in the UK and stuff, I've disappeared and started a new life. But, uh, so he's taken something that's really sentimental to him. But then seriously, who would throw away cash? For your listeners, the, the mill is a 24-7 operation. There's nearly as many people working on night shift as there is on early shift. Um... They are very tight and always have been, even when I visited, they are really particular on health and safety. You know, you've got to wear their gear, you can't have loose sleeves, and you you can't get caught in anything, that sort of stuff. So to walk around without a helmet on is not conceivable. But to walk around carrying a helmet, somebody else's helmet, it's also not, it would stand out. Um, Even more so if you're walking around with a helmet with the name Donnelly written on it when everybody's looking for Jim. Uh, just doesn't make sense either. So if you can just picture a big um, steel vat, uh, square, not, yep. not round, um, and it's sort of like part of a machine that the metal rolls through. And it is just a, it is literally a port size, just seen on TV inspection window. Yes, the helmet wouldn't fit through. Yep. But again, just circling back to what I said before, um, it was never going to dissolve anything. Mm. And so if, so if you put stuff in there, yeah, again, I don't want to overemphasize, but the complexities of it. So if you knew the mill, you worked at the mill, you knew how the process worked, you know that it would not dissolve anything. Yeah. But a stranger couldn't be there because mm. the, the security is so high and stuff. So uh, is it a, just a complete red herring? Is it just liber- deliberately put there to mess with the investigation? If you're going to hide something, the last thing you're going to do is put a big massive signpost on the front of it saying, hey, look in here. I know. And of course, we had to do it properly. So we had to shut down. We, um, Because people, you know, the word acid, uh, we had to get the ESR out there to show that there was no body fat uh, mm-hmm. in the acid. We had to drain it to get all the things out and stuff. Um, again, you know, just a massive uh, time-consuming red herring. We spoke to the people uh, from the police, particularly involved in that initial search, and 
you know, they don't put inspection hatches in obscure places, you know, easy access places. Um, yeah. I don't work there, but I would say there's no way over those days everybody looking for Jim Donnelly that his hat is going to be missed mm. and people are just going to walk past it. As I mentioned previously, the mill is like a small city and this includes its own laundry facilities. And it's here, eight days after Jim's disappearance, that another odd item was discovered. This lesser-known fact, not often publicised in the media, is the discovery by a mill worker of a pair of Jim's work pants in a locker of the laundry in the steel plant amenity block. The odd feature of this discovery was the fact that Jim's pants were dirty in amongst clean clothes. Going on from the hat, the laundry, um, Jim's pants being found in the laundry, um, what did you go, What did you make of that? Yeah, um, it was. It, it it didn't lead us in any any directions at all. I mean the um, the interchangeability. Everybody and I, I can say this from a police point of view with our uniforms and stuff. You know, um, again, um, just a red herring. It, yeah. You know, well, it doesn't. I mean, I'm gonna ask you the same question. What does it tell you? It yeah. doesn't actually tell you anything. Um, so, uh, but the fact that there was pieces of denim. Uh, in the acid vat, uh, again, you know, had, there's, there's no indication that those pieces of denim were from anything from Jim, but why the hell would pieces of denim be in the acid vat? Well, just like squares? Of yeah, yeah, li- 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 literally um, half of a letter size pieces, squares of, of denim, which may have been in there for a long, long time, and equally, you know, was, uh, other than gone black a bit, hadn't, you know, been dis- uh, hadn't been destroyed or yeah, uh, eaten up. Uh, yeah, I mean, so okay, so the laundry thing, it, it, it could just be nothing. It could easily someone else could have been wearing Jim's pants or something like. Look, that. Uh, and this is the uh, the culture of the mill at the time. It did seem to be a bit, again, just that it can be with the police, you know, and uh, uh, human beings, you know, first up, best dress, you know, you arrive at work, um, you, you, um, your your trousers are soiled for some reason, or there's something wrong with them and you'll grab the ones out of the next locker. It's, it's, yeah. it's not a great thing. It's, it's something that... It's, it's the reality of working in big teams. Yeah. You know? um, so we could try and uh, contribute something to it, but again, uh, it's just adding more confusion to the... Yeah. I suppose it's when you start adding all these circumstantial things, that's when you start to get this bizarre picture. Um, yeah, I mean, look at the... Um, the just digressing and we'll get back yeah, to yeah, sure. it's the um, the amount of people that in the initial few months uh, of the you know the information that came through and stuff was uh, the assertion that because the mill sounds really cool people that don't know anything oh he threw himself into the furnace mm. you know that was one of the very very first things that's eliminated you just can't do that yeah. you know so for your listeners it's you know you would be if you tried to it's not like you just open the door and walk in. Mm. If you tried to, you'd be knocked out unconscious from the heat mm. uh, way before you were able to actually hurt yourself. And it's not like you can climb a, um, a pipe and just drop into a furnace uh, because there's all sorts of heat exchangers and you know uh, filters and stuff. So, um, and there was only one furnace actually operating that day. And you know, subsequent to that, of course, all those things have been checked in case there yeah. are remains, but. Um, all that stuff's just fanciful. The belief that Jim had somehow entered a furnace 
is a widely held belief among the public who are largely unfamiliar with how a plant like this operates. Yet despite the almost impossibility of the task of entering a furnace, the mill did shut down the sole operating furnace at the time, which is no small task, and found no evidence of human remains. We'll explore the prospect of Jim having left the mill in an upcoming episode, but for the moment, if we can hypothesise that Jim didn't take his own life in some dramatic fashion inside the mill, that only leaves the other option, which would be foul play. But again, we run into the same issues. It just doesn't make sense. I mean, uh, you know, the, the, on, on, the, on the day in, in question when he went missing, you know, his behaviour at the locker was a bit unusual, and then as he's walking up uh, onto the gantry into his office... Um, and that sort of stuff. Uh, what I got from talking to people, and again, I'll be open. I I know people through my sport and stuff who work at the mill, and so we're always having conversations. Mm. I know people who work there now who I'm quite uh, good friends with, and so I hear the. Um, you know, it's a busy place to be removed from that office under duress. Again, seems inconceivable. Mm. Uh, of course, anybody can be uh, you know lured away. But uh, I, in my mind, there's nothing to indicate he was forcibly mm. uh, removed from there because there's too many eyes on him, yeah. too many opportunities to call for help. One commonly cited event that has many believing foul play was involved in Jim's disappearance was a suspicious sudden appearance of a vehicle in the mill car park on the night of Jim's disappearance. An unknown vehicle approached the mill car park, then upon seeing Mill's security backed away with its lights on full, seemingly to avoid detection. Could this be someone returning to the scene with Jim's car keys to remove his car from the car park? Or is this just another red herring? The car that drove into the car park that night? Yeah, yeah. So were you there when that happened? No, no. Oh, no, you weren't, sorry. Yeah, 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 but um, yeah, well across that and uh, the security guard that the mill had posted there you know, bloody suspicious. The fact that the way it reversed away more than anything else. So just to put it into context yeah. for your listeners, you know, the um, uh, his his car was there. They opened the boot. They seen that there is a bag there uh, with some clothes in it, and the security guard uh, was posted. Uh, the car drove in late at night, um, but then seemed to freeze when the security guard made himself visible. Um, and then the fact that it didn't just do a U-turn. You know, making itself highly visible as to what kind of car it was, registration numbers, having people in the car. The fact that it reversed back with the headlights on um, is very spe- uh, suspicious behaviour. Mm. Uh, but doesn't fit into any of the scenarios either. No, but it's certainly odd. You've also got to put into context, though, and uh, maybe getting a bit. The mill was a very different place back then. Uh, you know, I've been a police officer in. Um, uh, Papakura and Pukakohi a long time and uh, the mill back in the day and it's nothing like this now no aspersions on the mill but you know the um, because of the remote location uh, those car parks are very handy places for somebody to park up and smoke a bit of dope or um, Or any sort of action that they want to take place with Um, and so those car parks have become a little bit of a uh, urban legend or a legend in, of themselves. So the fact that somebody might maybe going up there for some illegal activity or um, yeah. discreet activity and see a security guard, uh, but to have the whereabouts or the knowledge to think, well, if I keep my headlights on and I reverse back, 
is probably beyond what the average Joe punter would be thinking. Yeah. But, you know, here we are straight away into making assumptions, you know, um, and that's the problem with this case. I'll keep going back to that. You know, nothing makes sense. As you can probably already tell, this case can drive you round in circles. And I can tell that there's a part of Dave's mind that has been occupied by this case for the last 12 years. I can really tell that he dearly would love to see this case solved and some resolution finally, not only for himself, but for Tracy and the rest of Jim's family, whatever that outcome might be. Our interview continues for some time, agonizing over every tiny piece of the puzzle we can think of. I can't include everything in the feature podcast, but that extended, unedited interview is available right now for our Apple Plus subscribers and may hold extra nuggets of information for those true crime sleuths out there keen to help solve this case. As I begin to pack up my equipment and thank Dave for his time, he makes it very clear that as far as he's concerned, they searched that mill from top to the very bottom. For him getting out of the mill without being seen, it just seems such a bizarre... Look, our, um, our, I know the guy really well, the sergeant from the police who was in charge of the um, secondary search. Yeah. Um, he uh, went extensively through uh, the OC of the original search, yeah. you know, which, again, you know, we're not... Um, open and honest about the fact that we're looking for a, a live or an injured person and all yeah. that sort of stuff, as you would do, yeah. you know. Uh, so there's no criticism whatsoever about anything they did. Um, but when we planned the second search, uh, they went through maintenance logs, they went through, you know, uh, the map of the of the place, you know. Um, over those years, you know, parts of the building have been rebuilt. Mm. You know, it's an ongoing development and yeah. stuff. Um, the uh, the the possibility of him being in some corridor or some underground location or in some uh, transformer shed or something, you know, was just eliminated. Yeah. We were pretty, you know, over because we had scheduled maintenance logs. Yeah. We had um, the fact that, you know, there's no way that people don't go for yeah. one reason or another over that period of time. You know, we're, we're talking about four years, no, what, six years yeah. later when this search was done. Um, our we, the plan the planning around the search eliminated uh, as best as we can I mean you can never say never and in the police you soon learn you can never say never that's a trick for young players but uh, in the realms of possibility uh, and I say we, we got everybody we could think of we got army we got search and rescue we got volunteers we got all the locals we got everybody and say we got all the team leaders wearing GPS and we tracked where everybody yeah. had been and stuff and it was a to say that just the fact that we found the boots and stuff you know yeah. it indicates just how thorough the search was but as we went further and further away from the mill it is uh, humanly uh, impossible to search every single square yeah. centimetre mm-hmm. so uh, you know when you've got a massive paddock um, you know, you're just going to use sight to, yep. to, to, to clear that. Um, yeah. But I, I'm, I'm confident that he's, uh, that, that, uh, he's not in the mill yep. himself. Um, and we've done the best that is humanly possible yep. in the environs. It's extensive and expansive yep. and stuff. Um, yep. But nothing's impossible in this yep. world. 
Guilt is written, produced, and edited by me, Ryan Wolf. The title track is Nuclear Conception by Alison Winter. For further photos and video related to this episode, you can find a companion post on my Instagram, RyanWolfNZ, or our Facebook page, Brevity Studios NZ. For ad-free listening and bonus content, you can subscribe for the price of a coffee on Apple Plus under our Brevity Studios channel. You can also find further information on our website, theguiltpodcast.com. If you have any information related to the disappearance of Jim Donnelly or the subsequent search at the mill, you can contact us anonymously at brevitystudiosnz at gmail.com. On the next episode of Guilt. You met Jim, and um, <laughs> right, right back at the start. Okay, so um, I met him um, at a party. Yeah. Um, Haley's Comet was in the sky at the time. Yeah. <laughs> and um, it was just a party I went to with a girlfriend. Yeah. I didn't know anybody there we just well it was a friend of hers that was having the party and um, yeah so we went in fancy dress because I was doing costumes at the stage for Milford um, Little Theatre so we decided to dress up because I had all the costumes at home so I was wearing tails I think and brought up to this party and um, had a few drinks got chatting to a few of the local <laughs> inhabitants of the flat and then yeah um, met met Jim and his friend Paul he was in, a, in the study sort of on his computer um, and I sort of popped in and that was when he said to me he said um, I, um, I just need to let you know I might be I could be fragile tomorrow and I was like, oh. um, okay, so do you mean, so I came back, I went away and thought about it, and then I came back, I said, do you mean physically or mentally fragile? And then he said to me, um, physically. are on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with quince go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365 day returns Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.